from Nashville, Tennessee, and broadcasting around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, this is The Far Side, and my name is Bob Bain. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Halloween is right around the corner, and because of that, the series of shows that we have lined up this month are tuned to the Halloween season. Tuned to ghosts, demons, goblins, and things that jump out and scare the living hell out of you. Plus, just a little bit of biblical knowledge at the end of the month with Dr. Michael Heiser. But for today, our guest this evening is Rosemary Ellen Galley. And Rosemary is one of the top paranormal researchers in the world. Her name is synonymous with paranormal researching. Rosemary has written well over 60 books on varying paranormal topics. And if you've never read one of her books, you can go to thefarside.tv slash rosemary, and that will take you directly to her Amazon page where you can check out her vast number of titles that she's written over the years. And she's got a new one coming out next year, I believe it is, about Zozo. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Rosemary Ellen Galley to the program. And without further ado, Rosemary, welcome back to The Far Side. Well, thank you, Bob. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to have you here with us. The first time and the last time we actually had you on was with uh, John Zephis, I believe it was. We discussed your uh, collaboration with him. It was Haunted Collectibles, I believe it was, the book. Haunted by the Things You Love, about haunted collectibles. Yes. You are one of the huge names in the paranormal researching field, but won't you give us some information on how you actually began this journey into the paranormal? I think I'm like a lot of people who go deeply into the paranormal. They have uh, an early interest, usually in childhood, a curiosity or some experiences or a combination of those things, as it was with me that propels um, a person to uh, go deeper into these mysteries. And uh, this has been a lifelong personal journey for me that uh, became my full-time professional journey in 1983. I've been specializing in uh, these fields. And when I say these fields, I'm including the paranormal, cryptids, UFOs, and metaphysics and spirituality because they're all interrelated. And they deal with different aspects of our personal growth, our expansion of consciousness, and our perceptions of other realities around us. So it was, uh, you know, a combination of things that uh, led me on this journey, which is a fascinating one. It's never a dull day. There are always new things to discover, and uh, I enjoy uh, meeting people and hearing about their experiences I'm really driven to understand the how and why of our experiences. I am not involved in trying to prove the paranormal. For me, it's always existed. Uh, rather, I want to examine why we have the experiences we do, how the conditions, uh, and what it means to a person. How do we understand these experiences? How do we integrate them? And how are we changed by them? Now, you just said that this has been a lifetime journey for you. And usually, from my experience, when someone said it's a personal journey, something happened to them to put them on this path. Was that the case for you? I can't point to a single experience. With some people, it is. Some people have uh, 
a, a very dramatic or even kind of a blowout experience that shatters their definitions of uh, reality and uh, gets them going. And for other people, it's a combination of things. Uh, if you if you grow up with this stuff uh, and it's part of your reality, then um, it's not a trauma drama. Uh, and that's the way it was for me, that I... I had experiences with angels and fairies. Um, psychic phenomena was discussed in my house. My mother had, had precognitive dreams. She had visitations. So my uh, point of curiosity as I got older was, why don't all people have these experiences? Um, it's not an even playing field. Some people have a lot of experiences. Some people have a few. And some people deny them altogether. So... Um, that was one of the things that propelled my curiosity to study these things in terms of uh, if these are real events, why are they not part of our everyday reality? I think they are. It's just that we're not aware of them. Along the way, I've had um, many kinds of experiences, encounters with many different kinds of entities and beings. Uh, As part of my research, my own personal unfoldment and some of the cases that I've worked on and uh, it's definitely been a huge interest of yours. I mean, you've written over 60 books by now, and that just blows my mind. Usually you have on a guest or talk to somebody, and their interest is in only in one field, UFOs, ghosts, spirits, the gin. Yours is wide-ranging. You're just not stuck in one place. You really are a paranormal researcher in the very sense of the word. Well, and it's the concept of being a Renaissance person. You know, centuries ago, the Renaissance man uh, was a person who was well-rounded and broad-based in their education. And today, that term applies to men and women in the field. I think that we are called to be Renaissance researchers because of the interconnectivity of all of these things. It's perfectly fine to have a primary interest and to specialize in areas. You know, we can't be experts in everything. But in addition to those primary interests and expertises, it's a good idea to be uh, as well educated as possible in related areas uh, because uh, it becomes much easier to see bigger pictures and to cross-correlate phenomena and experiences. There are patterns to them. And uh, when it comes to alternate realities, Uh, There are no black and whites. There are no little pie charts, no tables, no statistics that neatly separate one thing from another. Uh, Things blend together. And um, so uh, we need to know what's going on in related fields if we're going to try and understand the picture as a whole. Focusing just on one narrow aspect can certainly bring forth a a lot of knowledge uh, over the course of time But uh, to have that well-rounded perspective, to be able to see things in a greater context, you really do have to pull back and uh, look at a variety of phenomena, fields, and uh, even areas of study. So I've always recommended to people in all of these fields, and especially in the paranormal, to do that, to be broad-based, to uh, at least know what's going on in, in other fields and, and how it relates to your primary interests uh, if you're going to get a, a better textured in, detailed, uh, in detail and in-depth understanding. Yes, it's just like in college. You have your major field of study and your minor field of study. that They actually do build upon each other, and, and therefore it's very important that you 
continue to build yourself in the field that you're interested in and not necessarily be stuck in one foundation, if you will, like the foundation of ufology. If you're in ufology, try and find another field that builds upon that. And with that said, have you found that some of these paranormal phenomenon have, have been, uh, that they're related to other ones? Almost definitely. And in fact, if you look at the course of human history, it's very easy to see that we've had core experiences, that is, certain kinds of experiences which fundamentally haven't changed over the centuries. But our explanations of them do, the labels that we put on them do, and how we describe them do. Uh, so uh, here again, it becomes very difficult to uh, try and pinpoint things. For example, there's so much crossover between ETs and fairies and jinn that uh, how do you know that one is not the other? Uh, and all we can do sometimes is our best guess scenario. And being the time of the year it is, it's Halloween is coming up, and I would like to ask you about Halloween and spirits. I've always heard that around Halloween, whether it's the entire month of October or what, but that around Halloween, spirits become stronger, the veil becomes weaker, and they are able to energize themselves enough to maybe walk among us. How true is that? Well, that uh, goes back to very old folklore and ancient beliefs about the, um, the thinning of the boundaries between the world of the living and the world of the dead. And uh, in ancient times, uh, there were beliefs that uh, at certain times of the year, and particularly one time of the year, which is the time we're looking at now, uh, which we call Halloween, uh, that the door would open and spirits would be able to enter the world at will. Uh, actually, I think that spirits are around us all the time. Uh, it doesn't require uh, Halloween to perceive disembodied beings and uh, even the dead. Uh, these alternate realities are ever-present. But uh, there are times when it seems to be easier to open up those boundaries it's not just a day on a calendar, but uh, the veils will also thin at certain places on the planet where land energy acts on these boundaries. Uh, atmospheric conditions can have an impact, even phases of the moon. And the biggest wild card of all is human consciousness, uh, because if you are in the right state of consciousness at the right time in the right place, uh, you're going to have uh, an experience if something is is um, dramatically present. I think there are a lot of um, subtle things that go well below our radar, and it's probably just as well because um, the space around us would seem very crowded if we were aware of everything that's present. So true. I just got thinking that just like when seasons sometimes have uh, seasonal fruits, vegetables, is there such a thing as seasonal entities, entities that only come out around a certain time of year? I know that sounds stupid, but is there such a thing? Well, in folklore, uh, in the fairy lore, uh, midsummer is supposed to be a time of maximum activity when the world of nature is really at its fullest energy. Um, but uh, I think that if one trains one's psychic senses and uh, psychic eye, uh, these sorts of realities can uh, be perceived at any time during the year. Okay, so that's a no to seasonal entities. Well, 
yeah, I wouldn't say there's such a thing as seasonal entities. It's um, We can construe them that way by focusing mass consciousness. For example, at Halloween, there's a mass consciousness that's focused on the dead and ghosts. And so that projection of our energy, our own consciousness, is certainly going to stir a lot of things up. Um, but we're participating in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we participate in all of uh, all of these experiences. We're not just the unwitting passive recipients of experiences. Uh, now, when it comes to hauntings uh, for residual energies, uh, there is a phenomenon that's an anniversary phenomenon. And, for example, if you go to a famous battlefield such as Gettysburg, on the anniversary that uh, the battle was fought, uh, there seems to be a heightened activity at that time. Uh, and uh, here again, uh, it's impossible to pinpoint an exact reason why. It might have to do with uh, the uh, projection of human consciousness on, onto the uh, energies locked in the landscape. This is residual energy. It's just imprints uh, left over. And um, there may be some cases of, of earthbounds still, but usually it's residual energy, like battles constantly being fought over and over again. So uh, it's a common uh, practice of many paranormal investigators who are interested in obtaining evidence, photographic or audio, uh, to visit such places on the anniversary because they do seem to have better odds of getting uh, what they want. Now, when it comes to the collective consciousness and and certain phenomena, such as at Gettysburg, what's the possibility that it is created by our own energy, that whatever has been tapped into the magnetic rocks, whatever it is that's recorded this, that our consciousness empowers it, and therefore it starts to play because we are there empowering it? It's a very real possibility. In fact, you you really cannot rule out the impact of the consciousness of the living uh, in regard to an engagement with any haunting situation. And uh, I think it's no accident that the most active places at any given time uh, in history are places that have um, some sort of emotional uh, attachment to the living. Uh, which is why many things that uh, occurred centuries and centuries ago uh, are much harder to experience or tune into. I think the residual energies, first of all, they a lot of them have a battery life. Uh, they don't last forever. Hmm. And the more emotionally distant we are from something, we're not juicing whatever is there as much. And uh, when it comes to something for example, like Civil War battlefields in America. Uh, This is still a huge emotional energy for the mass consciousness. The psychic scars on the landscape are still uh, quite fresh. And in the collective, uh, there's a resonance with this time period and the events. People have an emotional response to events uh, and battles that took place there. And this most definitely has an impact on uh, what you would call the haunted landscape. And uh, that applies to uh, a lot of places. Now, oddly, there are some places where tragedies occurred, famous accidents, famous murder cases, and there doesn't seem to be much residual energy there at all. 
even though people are interested in experiencing that. Well, I think these things have to be energized by space and land as well. And uh, um, all of these things contribute to a haunting. It's not just isolated. It's not just an event that's hanging there in space. Uh, it's contributed to, uh, the energy of it is contributed to by a variety of sources. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have no real scientific way of trying to describe or measure that but um, these are, uh, you know, my working theories that I have, have developed over the years. Yes. What percentage would you say of hauntings are residual, and what percentage are actually intelligent hauntings? It's impossible to give a percentage. However, I feel that the average haunting, that is where you go and people uh, hear footsteps always in the same place or they see a figure always in the same place, Uh, These are residual, where phenomena are rather static, they're repetitive, Um, it doesn't seem to be intelligently directed. And uh, if you have things that are intelligently directed, i.e. something that uh, is very much aware of humans and trying to engage with them, uh, I really think that you're dealing with non-human entities, even if you think they're the dead, because Hmm. non-human entities will uh, masquerade as the dead. Wow. Uh, when dead or earthbound, uh, then you might get some engagement with them. But um, that's also my theory that I've developed uh, over many years of investigating. Uh, so the average haunting, the average ghost walk, that sort of thing, you're looking at residual energy. Mm-hmm. But um, in these other cases, uh, then you have to start considering the presence of something non-human, which doesn't mean it's malevolent. Uh, there are plenty of entities out there that are ambivalent, neutral, uh, benign. Uh, they're just not human. Yes. Now, when we last spoke, we got into the gin a little bit, and I asked you if the gin and genie, as we got to know it through, especially through a television show, I Dream of Genie, if, if they're related, and I believe you said that they are one and the same, except it's not exactly like genie in the TV show. Well, the term genie is a corruption of gin, and we can thank the French for that, for uh, mistranslating the term gin into genie. Uh, but um, there are concepts of gin uh, in terms of being able to imprison them uh, in vessels and uh, that they will grant favors. And there are many stories from ancient folk tales about uh, gin that were liberated and then granted wishes to their liberators. Uh, not necessarily always three. Um, but the jinn are far more than that. They are a race of uh, beings. They share the planet with us. They have supernatural abilities. And a lot of them don't like us for a variety of reasons. They're not of a single mind and purpose. And the human beings have had many entanglements with them over the centuries by uh, many different labels. And... Uh, Uh, Some of them um, uh, become fascinated with people uh, and want to attach to them. A lot of them are trickster. Some of them are quite malevolent. And some of them, like human beings, are uh, very enlightened. uh, But we don't seem to have a whole lot of interaction with them. I don't think they um, think that we're important enough. Mm -hmm. They almost sound as though they might be related to the fallen angels or demons. 
Uh, well, here again we get into semantics, and uh, when does one stop being one thing and become another? True. Um, I don't really think they're related to uh, demons um, in any sense of the word, except by story and description. In fact, I think that many of our cases that we call demon uh, and demonic uh, caused, uh, they're really jinn. Uh, are there demons as well? I don't see why not. Uh, there are some researchers who think that everything is jinn. It's angels, humans, and jinn, and jinn account for all other manifestations besides uh, angels and humans. And uh, I don't agree with that viewpoint, at least as yet. I'm open to the data, however. Uh, I certainly see the jinn footprints in everything, that they masquerade very easily uh, into whatever shape they think human beings uh, are going to be interested in. Hmm. And uh, so if you want to be interested in demons and have a fight with Satan, well, they're happy to do that. Um, but I also think that there are other entities uh, that are out there that we would call demonic. Um, and the demonic universe ranges from the uh, benevolent to the ambivalent to the malevolent. They're not all evil. Uh, Christianity has given us a very narrow concept of demons, and it's yes. quite erroneous. You know, something that's always bothered me, and, and I know that you've done research on angels as well, and uh, I've always wondered how an angel, even though they're fallen angels, how they could become evil when they were created out of nothing but love, supposedly. What, what have you found as far as, after the angels came down from heaven, how do they become Evil. Well, a study of angelology reveals a lot of conflicting uh, accounts and lore of angels. And so where does the real truth lie? Nobody really knows. Uh, but in many accounts, angels have free will. They can make decisions for themselves, and some of them like us and some of them don't. Uh, many stories to that regard. Yes. Uh, there are angels who are described as both good and bad, just like human beings. And uh, here again, uh, we've tried to fit a round peg into <clears throat> a square hole in Christianity by typecasting um, angels as uh, all good, uh, with no free will, and demons as all bad uh, and thoroughly evil. And um, those are only far ends of a spectrum with a whole heck of a lot in between that winds up being combinations of both. Uh, I regard angels as um, very powerful beings, uh, and uh, they seem to have uh, various duties. Uh, some, some of them attend to people, and some of them attend to other things in, in the workings of the cosmos. Uh, but they can come to our aid, uh, and uh, I do accept the stories that not all of them have been happy with people. Many stories of angels being unhappy with the invasion of paradise uh, by human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that all of those things uh, do exist, and uh, we really do need to redefine angels. Um, I, the ones that we are most likely to deal with uh, come to our aid, uh, and um, serve as lifelong companions and guardians, and uh, they really do play a very important intermediary role connecting us to the Godhead. 
and uh, also providing models for the aspiration of human consciousness and development, the constant striving for uh, the embodiment of the highest possible uh, virtues and attributes and characteristics. But it's all of these pictures in the spirit world are very complex. And like I was saying earlier, there's no black and white. There's no apple. There's no orange. Uh, there are energies and different vibrations and beings. And um, many of them, uh, I would say all of them, really are very complex, just like human beings. We could not categorize human beings in black or white categories. Mm-mm. Uh, most of us would resent it mightily if someone uh, from another world came and, and tried to typecast us all one way or the other. We, we would rise up and say, no, we're not like that. We're very complex beings, and not all of us agree about how some of us are behaving. Uh, and I think it's that way in the spirit world as well. Yes, I certainly agree that angels have free will just like we do. I mean, otherwise the uh, Lucifer Rebellion never would have happened. He, he never would have felt like he he deserved the kingdom of heaven. He was tired of uh, God giving us special treatment or whatever it is that they felt like was going on with us. They really resented that, and that's what caused the uh, huge issue, I believe, right? What caused the what? That, that caused the Re- Lucifer Rebellion was that God was giving us what they felt was special treatment, that he was going to allow us into the heaven, he was going to allow us certain treatment that angels felt like only belonged to them, and they joined with Lucifer to try and uh, change things. Well, that is uh, a story that has as much validity as uh, any other stories that we encounter from uh, mythology and uh, early tradition. I think all of these uh, accounts have a basis in uh, things that people really experienced and and were shown and came to know. And there's a similar story told about the jinn that when human beings came along, the jinn resented it and were uh, they didn't voluntarily leave; they were cast out. And uh, they also uh, the ones that. Uh, decided they didn't like us, banded uh, together under uh, a leader to um, to torment people. And wow. uh, so even in jinn lore, there are evil jinn uh, and uh, many different classes of jinn in between. There are benevolent jinn and uh, many jinn that fall into a little bit of both. Christianity, it's we're given an one or the other. You know, the the objecting angels fall and become demons, and then they're thoroughly, totally, 100% irrevocably evil. And they battle the forces of light, who are totally, completely, irrevocably good. And so we have these polarities with, well, what on earth is in between? Nobody ever tells us what's in between. It seems to be one or the other. Uh, when, in fact, most other concepts of, of these spirit worlds are filled with beings who exist in this between world, who embody a little bit of both. And uh, we don't seem to have that in uh, our prevailing religious view. Mm-hmm. With Jen, I remember you said that they can change the shape, that they can change form and appear to us anything we want them to be. How likely would it be for a Jen to actually live among us right now, and we don't even know it, that they might be our best friend? Will that be likely? Uh, the answer to that is no one really knows. They don't seem to, by most accounts, uh, 
be able to stay in our reality for any significant lengths of time. Uh, they can manifest in this reality and they can attach to people and draw energy off of them. Um, in ancient lore, uh, there are hybrids, uh, jinn and uh, human combinations, uh, which uh, seem to be able to exist on the planet, much like uh, many ET experiencers say today that there are ET and human hybrids living on the planet and mm -hmm. reptilian and human hybrids living on the planet. I think it's a possibility that um, we have shapeshifters among us and whether or not they are uh, always in a physical form or just sometimes in a physical form, uh, nobody really knows. But uh, my, my personal theory is that uh, they're not in physical form all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to mention some phenomena, and I'm going to ask you whether or not it's related to the gin. Well, I'll give it a try. Okay. What is it called? The old hag phenomena. Uh, could easily be the djinn. Uh, it's also found in vampire lore as well because um, vampires also have numerous descriptions. There's really no one definition of a vampire except a being who takes the life force. And uh, since the djinn uh, do like to visit and pester people in the bedroom, uh, they could uh, easily take that form. Um, they could take the form of poltergeists, apparitions of the dead, ETs, Bigfoot, mysterious creatures, dogmen, fairies. Um, doppelgangers? Well, I don't know if they would be a doppelganger. Uh, if a doppelganger is a genuine projection of a person's consciousness into a double form, um, could they be a doppelganger? Uh, well, I suppose theoretically, but I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any doppelganger accounts that have been attributed to Jen. Mm, interesting. Let's see here. Shadow people. A favorite form taken by Jen. Really? Hmm. I actually saw a shadow person many years ago. I guess it was 10 or so years ago. I looked outside uh, my parents' house, and I saw one out by the barn. He looked like he was maybe six feet tall, maybe a little bit taller. And you could not see any features whatsoever, but the only thing you could tell is that it was in the shape of a person, and it was all black. It was like a shadow. Mm -hmm. And that scared the living H-E, you know what, out of me. I went down. I just thought maybe my eyes are deceiving me, and there's actually somebody down there. So my dad and I, we went down there. He, he actually grabbed his gun because we had some issues back then with people breaking into the barn, stealing things. And... We couldn't find anything disturbed. There was nobody in there. That's a classic description of a shadow person. And uh, I, I have um, over a thousand accounts of shadow people manifestations. Outside, inside, daytime, nighttime, bedroom visits, attacks, non-attacks, uh, observations, abductions. Um, and I came to the conclusion uh, years ago that the only explanation for shadow, that fits shadow people behavior is gin. Mm. With a gin, I've asked you before, but if they were to be able to shapeshift, even momentarily, could they shapeshift into a national leader and cause a huge World War III? How likely is that? Well, I don't know. The honest answer is I don't know. 
um, the Jin seem to be involved in a lot of uh, human affairs involving uh, politics, uh, espionage, warfare, uh, and chaos. Uh, whether or not they actually manifest as uh, political leaders, if they can shapeshift into anything, then theoretically it would be possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not they do this, um, I I don't know. How how do they manipulate situations, especially in politics? Do they hover around and maybe mentally put out what they want to happen to their victims? They can influence people's thoughts and actions. And if you have a tendency to be greedy, they can magnify that greed and incite you to greedy acts. If you have a tendency to... Um, want to accumulate power uh, at all costs. They can magnify that uh, tendency to um, get you, uh, influence you uh, in that direction. And uh, so um, since they can um, sense the, the thoughts and the deep desires of people and if they get an attachment to a person, uh, then they can exert an influence on that person to do certain things. So um, the jinn also are literally for hire, and um, in many countries it's uh, um, acknowledged that if you desire money, power, fame, whatever, uh, then you go to uh, a sorcerer or a person who has uh, traffic with the jinn, and you buy the favors of gin, and um, it always comes with a price, of course, and uh, usually that that price is the life force in some way, you know, the draining off of uh, vital energy, uh, and so nothing is, is for free, but, yeah. uh, you know, I get emails every week from people who want things, and they've read somewhere that uh, the gin will do things for people, and so they want me to tell them how to get a gin to deliver. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my answer to them is don't do it, you know. As, I mean, even if you could do it, even if you uh, could succeed in doing that, you would pay and pay and pay. Your life would be uh, miserable, uh, and uh, it's it's not the way to solve your problems. No, it certainly isn't. It's just like the old story of selling your soul to the devil. That's essentially what you're doing, it sounds like. Well, that's certainly a parallel concept, definitely. And, uh, you know, we have that in, in our demonology that um, you can make a pact with these entities, and the price is your soul. Uh, and with the jinn, because the jinn are self-serving, uh, they'll... Uh, enter into packs for varying uh, types of payment. But if you give up your life force uh, and if you are um, sort of owned or dominated by an entity, well, that is a soul price. And um, that can wreak havoc not only in your life but the lives of your family and loved ones and uh, even on down through generations. Mm-hmm. Now, is it possible for the ultimate price to be paid, as in the jinn will take over your body and your soul will be left nowhere to be found? That would be the ultimate price, in my opinion, if you try and sell your soul, that you kind of take the uh, stealth out and they come in and then they have full control over you, over your body. Well, they can possess someone. 
Uh, and uh, there are many cases of gin possession, varying degrees of possession. Uh, could they own your soul forever? Uh, I, I don't really know for certain what the answer to that question is. The jinn do live much longer than we do, and um, if they were interested uh, in a particular individual, uh, could even subsequent generations of jinn uh, be involved in manipulating that person from um, one lifetime to another. Wow. Uh, there does seem to be uh, anecdotal testimony that uh, the jinn are capable of keeping track of you um, from one incarnation to another. Uh, which is uh, a rather disturbing thought. Mm -hmm. It really makes me wonder that there's a case out here in Adams, Tennessee, of the Bell Witch Cave. It makes me wonder if the Bell Witch might have actually been a djinn instead of just a spiritual entity. In the third edition of my Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits, that's exactly the conclusion I come to. Interesting. Let's go into, uh, I know you don't want to talk much on it, but Ouija and Zozo. When a person get it, gets into Ouija and they start to contact whatever it is they contact, are they actually speaking with spiritual entities such as uh, disembodied former human beings or maybe the jinn? Well, all of the above are possible. And uh, people have had all kinds of experiences with the Ouija board, um, some of them very benign. Uh, there have been high-level entities who've been contacted through the Ouija board, um, or at least entities that uh, conduct themselves in that manner. Uh, there are cases where uh, negative entities are able to come through the board and uh, influence people. Sometimes they start out sounding very good and very positive, and then they, uh, if they get an attachment going, uh, then they start becoming increasingly negative. Uh, and sometimes people seem to get negative entities right off the bat. Uh, we can't blame the board. It's not the board's fault. The board is a neutral tool. And uh, people have to be uh, very mindful of what they're doing when they open a door to the spirit world. It's not entertainment. It's a serious matter. It doesn't matter what tool you use, whether it's a ghost box, a board, dowsing rods, or automatic writing, anything. Uh, you have to be well-grounded, well-focused, and uh, not take everything on board and not just you know, open up to whatever is out there that you know, wants to uh, play around with you. Yes. Certainly, I had on uh, a guest by the name of Karen Dahlman, and I know you know who that is. Karen's a very good friend of mine. Yes, and she had told me that when you go into the Ouija, before you get into it, you need to really clear yourself of all negative influences, all negative thoughts, and come to it as pure, as happy as you possibly can. Because if you don't, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, that's more than likely the energy that you're going to draw toward you. It's, it's good common sense advice for any kind of engagement with the spirit realms. And uh, uh, any uh, metaphysical or magical um, instruction book will tell you the same thing, that you really do have to purify yourself if you are going to engage with the spirit world. And uh, in certain magical texts, for example, that's a very long process of fasting and 
uh, ritual bathing and um, meditation and, uh, you know, clearing the mind and, and body and spirit for this engagement. And uh, in mystical practices, uh, we find the same fundamentals where uh, you purify yourself through meditation and through diet and through acts in the world. Uh, and uh, some of this is like an ongoing approach to life in general, and, and some of it is very specific for specific engagements with the spirit world. Uh, but it is common sense. And uh, so uh, even if you are about to undertake a paranormal investigation, uh, it's a very good idea to uh, give yourself a, a check over in terms of your energy level, your state of mind, being in good health. It's not a good idea to uh, open up the door to spirit if you're fatigued, feeling poorly, agitated, um, because uh, these um, beings and energies can, can have an impact on you. And uh, why, do, why negative entities come through? It could be a combination of things. People's intentions, even subconscious, uh, people's overall states of mind, uh, things going on in the backdrop of life. You have to take all of those things into consideration. Yes. I'm, I'm going to try and have Karen back on here next year, and I'm going to try and do my first ever Ouija session live on air with her. And um, I was just wondering, would you be interested in coming and uh, joining Karen and I doing a live Ouija session? Uh, well, I'd certainly discuss it with Karen. She's um, a very proficient Ouija operator. We have had uh, a number of sessions together that have been very productive uh, with a lot of uh, intense uh, information from her guides coming. We've had contact with animals and people on the other side. Uh, and it's all positive. Uh, mm -hmm. Karen's work with the Ouija board is positive in nature. And uh, she's not the only one out there by any means. You know, Hollywood really has successfully demonized this uh, spirit device, unfortunately. So um, I would want to discuss it with Karen first and, uh, uh, you know, see what she has in mind. And uh, um, Oh, I know. I just thought I'd put it out there because I I've never done it before. And if it wasn't for Karen, I don't think I would do it because, like, the both of you have said it can be used the wrong way. It's almost like taking a toaster, plugging it in, and hopping in the bathtub with it. If you don't know how to use it, you could kill yourself. <laughs> well, um, one of the difficulties, which I don't think you'll uh, have with Karen, uh, one of the difficulties of uh, trying to do a Ouija board on the air sort of thing is you never know what's going to come across, and really your uh, biggest hazard is nothing happening because in a lot of board sessions, nothing happens or you just get kind of wandering um, half answers or gibberish even. But Karen has used the board for so many years, and she is so very focused that uh, I think it will be a lively show. Oh, I certainly hope so. And I believe... Actually, I was looking at your website, and I saw that you were going to be a part of a cruise next year called Conspira Cruise. Am I correct? Conspiracy Cruise, Conspiracy yes. Cruise. Now, what is that about? Well, it's a theme cruise, and uh, I've done theme cruises before. They are uh, a lot of fun. 
And this one is going to be from January 24th through the 31st, and it's going to start in Los Angeles and go down uh, <clears throat> the Mexican riv- uh, Riviera to Puerto. I can't remember the last port of call. There's s- several ports of call. And the theme of it is conspiracies. So uh, all of the presenters on board, and it's really a fantastic lineup, uh, will all be addressing various aspects of conspiracy. And this is going to range from uh, personal issues uh, like um, influences on health and uh, on your well-being to um, economics, um, conspiracy or financial manipulations, politics, um, involvements of extraterrestrials, uh, and uh, so many different topics. Uh, along with these ports of call for leisure, um, services will be on board, massages, readings, energy healing. A conspiracy massage. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a banner on my homepage, visionaryliving.com. You can click on the banner and go to the website and get all the information. The cabins are filling up fast, so anyone who might be interested in taking this cruise, um, I urge uh, that you you act on it soon. I will be presenting on the gin and also on psychic protection. How do we protect ourselves from the unwanted uh, negative influences of both people and beings? And then uh, I'll also be giving readings and uh, consulting on dreams and doing other kinds of uh, consultations like past life regressions as well. So I'm quite excited about it. Uh, As I mentioned, I've done themed cruises before, and um, it's uh, a really nice environment to get, um, uh, you know, this selection of topics and speakers and then be in a social environment uh, with uh, everyone as well. Uh, And then to have some time off and play on the Mexican Riviera. What a great winter break. Mm -hmm. Now, I I know you're still going to be working, but do you feel like you're having time off? Uh, Well, working trips, uh, my vacations usually are working trips. And so I enjoy the work so much that I really don't separate the two. But uh, I'm sure that um, my husband and I will get uh, some time off with some nice uh, land excursions and uh, a little bit of relaxation on, on the ship as well. But um, really, I'm, I'm there to be present uh, for people and uh, to network and talk and, you know, contribute to our knowledge of what's going on behind our backs and below the radar that we really need to know about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes, Puerto Vallarta is the last port of call. That's correct. <clears throat> okay. I know you're writing a book right now about Zozo. What can you tell us about Zozo without giving away anything that's in the book? I know a lot of people are interested in it, but what is Zozo and what can you maybe tell us that leads into your book? Well, yes, there's a lot about Zozo that's already known. And um, the book that I'm doing with Darren Evans, who has amassed a huge amount of experiences and information about Zozo for over a decade now, uh, we are going to uh, be breaking some new ground on the topic. But Zozo is a Ouija-specific entity that's very negative. And uh, this has been a phenomenon documented for some years now that it, uh, this entity has a pattern of, uh, at first, being kind of nice, 
and then becoming nasty, although in some cases it does start out nasty. But it's very manipulative, and there are certain people who are more easy uh, to manipulate than others, um, and they are predisposed to give their power away to um, things like spirits that they might feel are omniscient or omnipowerful. And uh, so this entity uh, is able to, in some cases, make attachments uh, so that it's able to sort of jump from this bridge of the Ouija board uh, onto an attachment basis with the person and then really creating a lot of havoc in their their lives um, with unpleasant phenomena in the house, nightmares, bedroom invasions, um, deterioration on all fronts in life, this is a pattern that's been documented over and over. The uh, entity uh, that calls itself Zozo also has other names. Uh, we call them the Z entities or the Zenities. Uh, Zaza is another one. Sometimes it's just Z. Then there are other variations like Mama. Uh, and uh, the pattern of behavior is all the same. Uh, my theory is that it favors the Ouija board because the Ouija board is in use so much. It's used by millions of people, and many of those people uh, have uh, very poor boundaries. They haven't done any spiritual work, or they have uh, issues going on in their lives that make them vulnerable. And uh, some of them are people looking for thrills and excitement, uh, and so it's found, this is my theory again, it's found that the Ouija board is an easy way to access human beings for attachment purposes, easier than other ways. So we're exploring the whole Zozo phenomenon, and we're going back through mythology to ancient times to find parallels. Uh, Zozo has left some very interesting tracks for centuries. Hmm. So it's not just a new phenomenon. I actually heard, uh, I guess it was a year or two ago, that this was a new phenomenon, but it's actually been around for centuries. Well, it's new in terms of its latest iteration. You know, all of these things that I think we're dealing with, um, they've been around uh, since uh, human beings have been on the planet, probably, probably even before we got here. And uh, when we think something is new, it's just being presented to us in a new way or we become newly aware of it. We give it a different interpretation, different uh, terminology. And uh, I think that's the case with Zozo. Now, the Ouija board has only been around since the early 1890s. So uh, this entity or collection of entities, if it's a group of entities, they found other ways to get to people before uh, the Ouija board came along. And uh, it's only been since mid-century that uh, Hollywood has planted the idea in people's heads that the Ouija board is a demonic, a dangerous, evil device. Uh, and so this entity capitalizes uh, on that as well. Uh, if you have a lot of people thinking that the Ouija board is dangerous, then that really opens up an energetic pathway for uh, something of that sort to come through. It's like, well, we've created that portal. It wasn't the entities. We created the portal. Um, and it's really an artificial, uh, artificially created one because the, the Ouija board was um, not that way in the beginning. It was an entertainment device. It was um, uh, a commercial device. 
and uh, from the get-go, people have uh, used it for uh, very odd purposes. Very odd purposes, huh? That sounds interesting. Anything that's used for very odd purposes is interesting. <laughs> that's my opinion. In the book that I did with Rick Fisher called Ouija Gone Wild, um, we look at uh, a century of um, incidences with the Ouija board uh, reported in the media. And uh, we went through uh, newspapers and in more recent years, internet articles and uh, reports of how people uh, were influenced to do things uh, Mm -hmm. via the Ouija board, like commit murder, divorce, um, commit suicide, make strange financial um, arrangements, commit all sorts of crimes, and um, very bizarre behavior. Hmm. But if, if you look behind that, um, a lot of these people were predisposed to doing something or believing something before they ever approached the Ouija board. And uh, I think that they got the validation that they wanted or were looking for, and that gave them permission to, uh, in some cases, literally go berserk. Yeah. You could almost say that some of these people become possessed by the entities that they've reached out to. And some uh, willingly so, in uh, maybe even an unconscious way. Yes. Rosemary, before we do let you go, I know... Last time we spoke, you also spoke about, um, what was it, you were starting up your own podcast. How's that been going for you? I've had to put it aside, Bob, because I've had such a rigorous travel schedule. Uh, This year has been busier than ever. I've been uh, booked almost every weekend of the entire year Mm. with very long road trips, and it just has not been conducive to, uh, to launching a podcast. So... It's backburnered uh, for the time being, and uh, I'm happily a guest on other people's shows, such as yours, uh, as one way of staying connected with uh, folks out there. And I would like to, uh, before we end, uh, just mention my website again, visionaryliving.com. That's my main website. And then uh, I have a website devoted just to the gin called ginuniverse.com, and gin is spelled DJ. I-N-N. Before we let you go, Rosemary, I've got one last question for you. Sure. If time travel were real here and today, where would you go to and what would you do? Well, it'd be hard to pick one single thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. You know, I'd, I'd really have to think about that one, Bob. Oh, that's okay. It's something I, I try and ask at, at the end of every show. Right. Well, uh, I wouldn't want to give like just a quick answer off the top of my head. Uh, I'd want to think very carefully about if I had one trip to make, uh, what would it be? And I'd have to give that a lot of careful thought. Well, that's completely understandable. Rosemary Ellen Galley, thank you so much for coming back to the far side. It's always a great honor to have you here with us. And I know the audience loves hearing from you because, like I said, you are one of the superstars, if you will, of the paranormal researching field. Well, thank you very much, Bob, and a pleasure being on the show again. 